If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select Eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Hmm. It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore. See the love. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is Roland White, a historian and author specialising in aviation. He's the author of Harrier 809, which tells the story of the 1982 Falklands War by zoning in on the part played by the Sea Harrier jump jet and the reformed 809 squadron. Roland spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Roland, you've written several books on aviation history before. What was it that drew you to the story you've covered in this book? Well, I was 11 years old when um, the Falklands War was was fought, um, and I suppose as a kid growing up in the 70s, uh, I'd uh, you know made airfix models and I'd um, you know read Commando comic and things. I think you know anyone who grew up in the 70s had, had a childhood sort of infused by uh, um, the sort of legends and um, stories of the Second World War. Uh, and of course, in 1982, um, the outbreak of the Falklands War, uh, there was this sort of aeroplane um, obsessed uh, 11-year-old boy who's suddenly able to follow in real time, day by day, uh, events in the South Atlantic. And we had this sort of very uh, memorable Ministry of Defence uh, spokesman called Ian MacDonald, who every day would come on and announce that um, the Sea Harrier fighter bomber aircraft had shot down this many Argentinian planes or you know this ship had been sunk or this battle had been won and um, you know it's tremendously exciting um, and I hope I've got a slightly more grown-up uh, perspective on it all now but as an 11 year old boy I was sort of uh, seizing on the papers every day and, and rifling through them. So this is a book almost that was conceived in your childhood actually? Yeah, I mean, that's probably true of, of, of all the books I've written. It's been this incredible opportunity to get to uh, grips with some of the stories that I be- first became aware of as a child uh, and meet and talk to some of the people involved. I mean, that's a, 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 an incredible privilege and sort of a dream come true. I mean, if you told me when I was 11 years old that I'd be uh, getting to know some of the pilots uh, involved, um, you know, I'd been bouncing down the street in, in happiness. And for those of people who may not know a huge amount about this story. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the Sea Harrier and what its story was prior to the Falklands War. Well, uh, it was interesting. I mean, I think prior to the Falklands War, for all that it had been in service for, um, you know, over a decade with the Royal Air Force and much more recently the Royal Navy as the Sea Harrier, uh, I, I think it was in certain circles perceived as a sort of air show novelty. You know, it did this um, this hovering thing, vertical takeoff, and it would um, 
pirouette and um, bow to audiences at air shows. Um, And yet there was very much a a view uh, that I think was quite widespread that it was, as a warplane, incapable of carrying a box of matches from one side of a football pitch to the other. Um, And I think um, the Falklands War was this sort of uh, opportunity for it to silence its critics, uh, and it did that, obviously, in in no uncertain terms. And now your your book focuses specifically on 809 Squadron, and the formation of that squadron is quite interesting because, am I right to say, it wasn't actually put together until the war had begun? Oh, that's right. Uh, there were two frontline Sea Harrier squadrons, uh, w- one assigned to each of the two uh, aircraft carriers we had at the time. And after the uh, after the, the invasion, it was realised that this tiny force of uh, frontline Sea Harriers that we had, and, and by scraping together uh, a few more from the headquarters squadron at, at um, Royal Naval Air Station Yeovilton, we managed to put together 20, which sailed south on the, uh, the 5th of April. Um, it was realised that if there was going to be a shooting war, there was every possibility that we were going to lose some of those those 20 Sea Harriers and that 20 could quickly become 15, could quickly become 10, and the, the air defence of the fleet would no longer be a viable uh, proposition. And so there was a, a, a an urgent effort to try and put together reinforcements uh, for that small Sea Harrier force, and um, the decision was made that the easiest and most effective way of doing that was to form a brand new squadron using aeroplanes taken out of deep storage, uh, attrition replacements, some from uh, British Aerospace, uh, some from test squadrons, and pull pilots back, often from exchange programmes uh, in Australia or uh, America, Germany as well, um, to to fly, train them up and fly them very, very quickly. After the squadron was formed on the 7th of April, they had less than three weeks before they uh, were then sent south to fight. And why do you think that Britain w- was seemingly so underprepared for this conflict? And, ha- you know, having to pull planes and pilots from all kinds of places, not having this force ready to go already? Well, certainly the, the fleet air arm had always been something of a Cinderella um, service uh, there um, from the, the sort of heyday of the end of the Second World War through to the mid-60s. Uh, it, it was a large force uh, flying off. Uh, I mean, at the end of the war, there were scores of carriers, but uh, by the 60s, there were five or six large carriers, all of which had squadrons of fighters and bombers. But as Britain withdrew from empire, uh, the need for large numbers of carriers to, uh, to to sort of cover that withdrawal uh, reduced and reduced. And um, by the, uh, the the mid-60s, the decision was taken to end the large uh, carrier force uh, and to concentrate solely on the North Atlantic and our commitment to NATO. Um, in support of that, we developed uh, uh, an anti-submarine force and there's a feeling that, that perhaps a small f- force of fighters to fly off those those carriers would be useful. But really, they were only intended to kind of deter um, Soviet patrol planes. It was never felt that with that pivot in our um, interests and our, our defence posture, there was going to be a need for large fleet carriers carrying squadrons of uh, fighters in the same way that the Americans had. So it was really a question of what, as a country, we had decided to focus on. Um, and uh, as Dennis Healy said when he 
uh, took the decision to not to replace HMS Ark Royal, the last of Britain's big deck carriers. Um, as the Navy had made their case, he said, the only scenario which was never presented to me was the invasion of the Falkland Islands. You know, and that, that was clearly a scenario in which only a carrier could provide air cover. Whereas in all the other situations that, that he had looked at and uh, been asked to consider, there was at least the possibility of providing land-based air cover. So on that point, could you just give us a sense of how important the aircraft carriers were to the task force that went to the Falklands? Well, they were vital. Um, Henry Leach, Sir Henry Leach, who was chief of the Naval Staff, First Sea Lord at the time, said, without the Sea Harrier, there could have been no task force. So without the Sea Harrier, uh, the Falkland Islands would still be in the hands of the Argent- Argentinians. I mean, there's, there's simply no doubt about that. Um, and Sandy Woodward, who was the admiral... Uh, um, uh, leading the task force um, said that uh, he felt that conceivably if they'd lost Invincible, the smaller of the two carriers, he could have continued the operation, but that if he'd lost Hermes, which was the bigger of the two two aircraft carriers, they'd have just had to pack up and go home. I mean, without the, the Sea Harriers, without those two carriers, uh, there could have been no effort to, to retake the Falkland Islands. And so the book uh, is really not just about the uh, the recreation of Harrier of, of 809 Squadron, but uh, turned into, as I was researching it, uh, an account of the wider effort uh, at home, uh, at sea, but also actually on the South American mainland uh, to uh, make sure that this, the, the carriers were kept safe from air attack. And so once the, the squadron and these Harriers arrived in, in the South Atlantic, what what were their, were their kind of day to day responsibilities? Well, they would they would mount round the clock, or certainly by daylight, uh, round the clock um, ca- combat air patrols at a uh, really over the islands um, to try to maintain um, or, or establish air superiority, uh, and through the night they would keep a um, uh, Harriers on alert, uh, ready to intercept any possible um, attack from the Argentinians. So the the reason for those combat air patrols was to uh, establish an environment in which it would be possible to mount uh, an amphibious assault on the islands. So the only way to actually retake the islands was to defeat uh, the Argentinian forces on the islands. Um, you could maintain a blockade, but that's actually not getting rid of them. Uh, you, uh, you, you could establish air superiority over the islands, uh, but that's not getting rid of them. The only way to actually remove them physically is to put soldiers on the islands uh, and defeat them in battle. Really, the only way in which you can um, mount an amphibious assault like that, uh, uh, an opposed amphibious assault like that, is to give yourself something resembling air superiority so that so that, that landing, um, those amphibious landings, can't be attacked. I mean, that, that was true on D-Day, and it was true uh, when we put forces ashore um, in, uh, in the Falkland Islands as well. It's a prerequisite, if you like, uh, for mounting an amphibious in, uh, assault. And then one thing that you cover in your book, actually, as well, is the Argent- Argentine side and the the air forces that they had. What kind of opposition were the men flying the Sea Harriers facing? Well, they were a professional air force. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And they were equipped with what were at the time, um, if not state of the art, certainly uh, not obsolete um, 
uh, aircraft in the form of Skyhawk supersonic Mirage, which had on paper at any rate uh, superior performance to the to the Sea Harrier, um, and then the carrier-based uh, um, uh, Skyhawks and Super Etendars of the Argentine Navy as well. So I mentioned that there were twenty Sea Harriers, and that was reinforced by the eight. Uh, Harriers of uh, 809 Squadron that went went south on Atlantic Conveyor. Uh, but there were uh, 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 about 200 um, serviceable frontline fast jets in the Argentine um, order of battle. And so we were outnumbered um, 10 to 1. Uh, and um, you know, there were certain um, factors in f- that worked in favour of the British. Uh, we had uh, the most advanced um, uh, air-to-air missile uh, in the form of the uh, the AIM-9L Sidewinder, uh, which the Americans had supplied us, which gave us some advantage um, in dogfights. Um, but more than anything else, it was the, the training that the British pilots enjoyed that gave them um, confidence um, and... Um, uh, I suppose the the knowledge, the wherewithal, the skill uh, to uh, get the best of the Argentine uh, forces uh, through membership of NATO. Um, all those British fighter pilots had enjoyed uh, uh, training against the very best the Americans, the French, the Germans, the Italians, Spanish had to offer against the most advanced and capable uh, fighters in the world. Um, and the, the Argentines, for all that they were brave and that they were skilled and they were qu- equipped with decent aeroplanes, just lacked that sort of uh, fantastically rigorous peer-on-peer training that the, the British pilots enjoyed. And so I suppose I mean, even though some of the pilots in 809 Squadron hadn't had that much time on the Sea Harrier, their combined previous training was what set them apart from... That's absolutely right, yeah. I mean, I, 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 um, I enjoy telling people that... Um, some of the pilots who flew the Sea Harriers in uh, 809 Squadron had had less time in the cockpit of those Sea Harriers than uh, some of the young pilots who were sent into um, war during the Battle of Britain in their Spitfires and Hurricanes. But the truth is, as you rightly point out, um, although they had very little time in the cockpit of a Sea Harrier, they often had a lot of experience in one of the Royal Air Force Harriers or prior to that, uh, the Phantoms and Buccaneers of the Fleet Air Arm uh, or uh, the Lightnings that um, they, they had flown for the Royal Air Force. So there was there was actually an enormous amount of, um, of combined experience uh, within 809 Squadron. Uh, it's just that very often it wasn't, uh, it all hadn't been uh, um, uh, found on the Sea Harrier itself. And for the, for the pilots themselves, this must have been both, I suppose, an exhilarating, but also a pretty terrifying experience to do something that they probably had never experienced before. And, you know, where their, their lives were on the line in this way. Well, certainly, you know, they weren't blind to the possibility that they might not be coming home. And indeed, you know, there were a number of Sea Harrier pilots who tragically lost their lives there. None, I should should add, in um, it, it, through air combat, uh, but through uh, through accidents, uh, tragic accidents. Um, but I think that that um, probably more than fear and anxiety, um, although certainly that was present. Um, many of the Sea Harrier pilots regarded it uh, as an opportunity to prove themselves and and prove the Sea Harrier, prove doubters wrong. Certainly, uh, Nigel Ward, Sharky Ward, uh, as he was known, uh, who was the boss of 801 Squadron on Invincible, um, actually relished the opportunity to take the Sea Harrier um, into combat because he felt that it had, it, it was an airplane that was misunderstood, uh, that was underrated, uh, and that deserved an opportunity, to, as I say, to prove those doubters wrong. And it, it did so, obviously, in some style. Yes, and as, as you just said earlier, there were no uh, Sea Harriers lost in air combat, whereas they did kill a number of 
Argentine. So do you put that success down more to the plane or to the pilots? It's a combination of, of both. Um, and contributing to that also were the, um, uh, the circumstances under which the Argentinians um, had to operate. They were at about 300 miles from, uh, from their home bases and often carrying um, quite heavy weaponry. Um, at the limits of their range and endurance. So they weren't really in a position where they could um, uh, engage in long, drawn-out um, uh, air battles. Um, they weren't in a position where they could uh, make the most of the superior performance uh, of those those mirages. So it wasn't um, it wasn't entirely one-sided. Uh, there were challenges faced by uh, both the Sea Harrier pilots and the Argentinian pilots. Um, but I think... Um, uh, you know, in in the end, it was that superior training um, that paid off, rather than any innate superiority um, of the the Sea Harrier. Um, the Argentinians certainly were concerned that they knew the British pilots had these more advanced missiles, and that gave them a that gave the British a certain advantage. In the same way that you know, when Mike Tyson stepped into the ring, um, the opponents were half beaten already because they'd seen how destructive he had been in previous bouts. You know, that confidence counts for a lot. You know, if you're always watching your uh, watching your tail, uh, you're um, likely to be a little bit less front-footed and aggressive in your own um, uh, approach to the fight. Uh, certainly, luck played its part as well. Um, but the you know the Sea Harrier um, had very significant attributes in air combat uh, below uh, sort of fifteen twenty thousand feet at sort of low to medium altitudes. It had an enormous excess of power, which meant that should it get caught in a a turning fight. It was able to rapidly uh, increase its speed and, and get its energy back. And it was the ability of, a, of an aeroplane to um, to, to uh, gain speed again quickly, um, because speed is key in a dogfight. Uh, that is often uh, the, the the key to uh, to, to success. Um, and as I said, at low altitude, the Sea Harrier had uh, that excess power it needed in abundance. And the, so the trick was to try to keep those fights at low level rather than get drawn up to higher altitudes where the Argentinians would enjoy you know a, a greater advantage. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, that's the kind of distance we're, we're, we're talking about. And so to maintain a supply chain, the logistics, um, which are absolutely critical to the successful um, prosecution of any campaign, the logistics chain was, um, I mean, it was magnificent. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed so as, as you said, the Sea Harriers performed really well and won a number of victories, but had a few gone the other way, how much danger might they have been? I mean, how close run a thing was it? Well, I think it, it, it really was a close run thing. I mean, we've seen that the Argentinians had the ability to, to sink British ships. The British ships went down to the, to the South Atlantic um, 
with the uh, um, the retirement of Ark Royal um, in 1979, um, without there being uh, uh, any kind of airborne early warning system um, to to pick up and detect uh, raids uh, at an early enough time to mount a really successful uh, interception. Um, before they were in an opportunity to fire their missiles. So there was always this uh, um, terrible risk of exposing the carriers to the uh, the possibility of an attack by those Exocet um, missiles. Um, if one of those missiles had got through, if one of the those carriers had been um, uh, hit and sunk or put out of action even, um, then, as Sandy Woodward was quick to point out, the war could have gone a very different way. And the other thing that that it, it is critical um, is just the distance. If you think about it, the distance that uh, uh, Britain was operating um, away from home. I mean, eight thousand miles is a, is an enormous distance um, to be operating uh, away from home. It's as if you were um, fighting a war in um, in, in Western China, um, but mounting it from uh, from the UK. I mean, that's the kind of distance we're we're we're, we're talking about. And so, to maintain a supply chain, the logistics, um, which are absolutely critical to the successful um, prosecution of any campaign. The logistics chain was, um, I mean, it was magnificent uh, and an extraordinary uh, thing to have pulled off. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you know, before the war, uh, senior figures in the Pentagon um, and in the US Navy uh, were advising um, the politicians that this was not a war that Britain could win. Certainly, the the, the the kit that we had, uh, it was capable, but we were so far from home um, that uh, we were um, uh, a, a, a very, very thin, dark blue line, if that's how, how you might want to describe the task force. But, but as we know then, whether, you know, through skill and through fortune, Britain did prevail. And how important do you think the Sea Harrier's contribution was to that ultimate victory? Well, I mean, it was um, certainly one of the more eye-catching elements of the campaign. Um, you know, we, uh, 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 in a number of days of quite intense combat, uh, uh the Sea Harrier shot down 23 enemy aircraft. Um, they, they prevented on occasions, uh, ships being attacked and sunk. They certainly, uh, allowed the, um, the amphibious operation to, to, to take place and take place successfully and allow, um, the, uh, the British amphibious force, the Paras, the Royal Marines, uh, to establish a presence on the, on the islands from which they could break out and, um, uh, attack the, the the defending Argentinian forces. Uh, none of that could have happened without the the Sea Harrier, um, and so uh, you know it was it was certainly uh, uh, one of the key weapons of the of the campaign. Um, uh, without which, it couldn't have been won. And earlier, you mentioned that the Sea Harrier, prior to the war, has a reputation, perhaps almost like a show pony, rather than yeah a, a really effective weapon of war. Did that change with what happened in the Falklands? Oh, without a doubt. Um, you know, the Sea Harrier from that point on had, had won its spurs in a real shooting war and was treated with a great deal more more respect. Now, it was very interesting to, to stumble across a, a quote when I was working on the book uh, from the um, the admiral uh, in charge of the uh, the Soviet Navy, um, Gorshkov, uh, who, when the Indians were thinking about uh, what they might use on their aircraft carriers, just told them, buy the Sea Harrier. Uh, so, you know, the um, the forces that uh, the Sea Harrier had been designed to, to tackle, uh, the, the Warsaw Pact forces, uh, had a, a good deal of respect for it as an aeroplane. I think it surprised everybody at every turn um, and, uh, you know, ultimately established, um, you know, 
a, a, a very um, a very strong reputation uh, as a very capable aeroplane, and it was developed um, through its service life um, between 1982 and 2006 when it was retired um, into what was arguably um, the most capable fighter um, in Europe uh, for a while. And so it was an impressive piece of kit. But, um, you know, it, it was uh, definitely an aeroplane which uh, with um, that sort of battle-proven um, tag uh, was viewed very differently after the war to, I think, the, the, the way it was seen before the war. And then what became of the men of 809 Squadron? Because as you mentioned, a lot of them were pulled out of regular jobs. They weren't necessarily actually involved in the military at the time. Did they go back to their old lives afterwards? Yeah, some of them did. Um, two members of, uh, of 809 Squadron certainly went on to command, um, in fact, three went on to command uh, naval air squadrons of their own after the war. Um, one, Tim Gedge, who was the commanding officer, uh, got a role inside the Ministry of Defence where he was largely responsible for drawing up the, um, the requirements for um, the Sea Harriers replacement. Uh, and that is about to go to sea uh, aboard Queen Elizabeth um, uh, on operations for the first time, the new aircraft carrier, um, Queen Elizabeth for the first time. That's the F-35, which uh, is going to be equipping the return of 809 Squadron in the next couple of years when that's reformed um, again. Um, and so, uh, you know, that they had enjoyed many of them quite long and successful uh, careers in the fleet air arm prior to the Falklands. A number of them um, enjoyed uh, um, uh, continuing success after that. One of them, John Leeming, um, who scored 809's um, uh, only kill during the war. And it's a very dramatic dogfight uh, low over Falkland Sound where uh, he attacked uh, um, an Argentine uh, Skyhawk that had just thrown bombs into HMS Ardent. Um, and and brought it down um, with uh, with with his cannon rather than with a missile, and then flew through the sort of fireball that, that ensued. He sadly was killed in a um, an air to air collision um, shortly after the war. Uh, so um, I hope I've been able to um, sort of bring his story to life and um, and and record that in a way that that will um, you know be be memorable for people because uh, you know, he can't now uh, speak for himself. I was very lucky to find a, a diary that he'd kept or been asked to write, I think, by the, the Royal Air Force after the war. So he was able to draw on some of his um, sort of first-hand uh, recollections of the of the fighting, which were um, sort of shot through with um, the sort of sense of humour that, that everybody told me he had, um, but also some very vivid descriptions of the, the fighting, including the prickles on the back of his neck as he entered that dogfight. And you have also spoken for the book to many surviving veterans of the conflict. How do they look back on the war now, nearly 40 years on? Well, I think um, it, it varied. Um, I think 809 Squadron as a whole had felt that uh, in comparison to perhaps the two existing frontline squadrons, their story had um, been rather forgotten. And I'd felt that in many ways it was the most remarkable. It's got a sort of dirty dozen feel to it. You know, they, they, they were um, pulled together at short notice from all around the world given some very rudimentary training uh, about which button did what and then thrown into combat as a piece of storytelling that's um you know that's that's a gift um and i think that that sort of feeling that 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 perhaps they hadn't enjoyed the credit that that they deserved was was certainly there 
um but also the um the immediacy of of the war and the fighting was was right there for a number of them as well um and um you could tell um talking to them just how close to the surface um the uh the the tension the fear uh the um the, the sort of sense of battle um, stress that they had in, endured during the war uh, still remained. Um, and, um, you know, there were moments where I was so sort of talking to um, Sir Mike Layard, who'd been the senior naval officer on board Atlantic Conveyor uh, when it was sunk. And that was the ship that took 809 Squadron down. And he was a former Fleet Air and Fighter pilot himself. And I was just on the edge of my seat hearing his uh, account of events there and of the death of his friend, Ian North, who was master of, of Atlantic Conveyor. They were the last two off the ship. Um, and North sadly didn't make it onto a onto one of the life rafts. And he, he had survived being sunk in the Second World War as a member of the Merchant Navy during the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, and, um, and so the, there were these... Um, you know, really remarkable and, and sort of vivid first-hand uh, stories brought to life, uh, which I felt very privileged to, to to hear. But as I said, even though that they took place almost forty years ago, they were still vividly recalled and uh, you know, very obviously very very close to the surface. Um, okay, Roland, I think I've been through all the questions I was planning to ask you. Is there anything more that you think we really should have discussed that I hadn't brought up yet? Well, it's probably my fault for not uh, uh, weaving it into one of the answers to to, to one of the questions. But I, I think um, that the the way that the book developed as I was researching it, uh, which I found tremendously exciting and a little unexpected, because I I initially thought it was going to be quite a a short, sharp, focused account of eight oh nine's war. But I realised uh, as I got into it that I nobody had really looked at the uh, the the. Uh, archives since they'd been declassified and released under the 30-year rules. So I, I went through them with a fine-tooth comb, um, realising that there was an opportunity to uh, to tell a much bigger, um, richer, um, more layered story of the war. And so it stopped being just this kind of very narrow account of 809 story, although I hope I brought that to life with, uh, you know, uh, uh, drama and excitement and, and uh, in, in the way that it merits. Uh, but alongside that, I realised that there were these sort of top secret operations by spy planes flying out of secret island air bases in Chile, um, a plan to land... Um, uh, old Canberra spy planes on the Pan American Highway, refuel them and send them into uh, action, taking photographs of Argentine forces. And on another occasion, uh, uh, a Nimrod spy plane, which, as I say, had been flying off a, an island airbase um, off the coast of Chile, um, nearly being lost on one occasion to interception, and it had to sort of dive down to to low over the Beagle Channel to to reach safety. And another occasion when uh, it lost an engine and had to come screaming into that. Uh, that uh, short island runway and nearly went off the off the end of the cliff. Um, you know, there were these sort of pockets of drama that I don't think had ever been written about or sort of discovered before. And and so the story became about the um, the much broader effort to uh, protect the carriers from air attack and to provide early warning um, from mainland um, uh, South America, from within Chile and even from inside Argentina of when these raids were being launched. And we used um, the SAS to provide warning uh, as, as well. So that that there would be some time to prepare the defences of the task force. And so as the war progressed, we became better and better at that. And in the, in, in the last attack 
um, all of those elements came together to protect um, the carriers from uh, from air attack. Um, and uh, the attackers were shot down. The Exocet missile uh, went astray uh, because it was... Um, it was successfully defended against by the tar- task force, um, and it and so as I say, these various different strands of the story uh, grow increasingly important through 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 the book, alongside these accounts of uh, of, of dogfights into what I think. I mean, I I felt in the end that it, it it had sort of turned into the sort of thing that Tom Clancy might write. I mean, a, a sort of real life sort of non fiction thriller, and so I really hope I've done justice not just to the to the fighter pilots um, and uh, and and. Um, Men of uh, the, the the Royal Navy ships and submarines, um, but also to those Royal Air Force pilots who were flying these sort of secret missions, and to the uh, special forces who were at work on uh, the South American mainland as well. It was a really combined effort, um, and I'm not sure that that's ever ever been completely understood. Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about the Sea Hare, and undoubtedly that played an, a critical role um, in success but um, it was really a force of combined arms the the air force the navy the army the royal marines uh, as well as industry uh, sort of back home all played their part and um, it was uh, spectacular the way it all came together and i think britain in 1982 was one of only two countries in the world who could conceivably have mounted an operation like that so far from home and why do you think Britain was in that position, therefore, having had all these cutbacks? Why was Britain still paramount in this way? Well, there was still uh, um, a sort of vestigial uh, uh connection with with just how broad that um, approach to things had had been um, in the Second World War. I mean, we still had a you know, radar research establishment. We still had, um, I mean, we had, um, gosh, what was it? Uh, you know, a sort of a, a, a department, I think it was somewhere in Surrey, that specialised in, um, in, in birds. Uh, so we were able to get reports on the kind of impact that the bird life in the South Atlantic might have on operations. I mean, there was even a note in, in one of the things that was given to the Sea Harrier squadrons telling them that um, you know the biggest bird in the South Atlantic was the penguin, but that they shouldn't worry because even though they can jump, they can't jump that high, so they're unlikely to be... A, I mean, it, you, know, you, don't, you found humour in some of the sort of official reports and things as well, but it, there was an enormous amount of uh, expertise that, uh, w- while it may have been neglected in 1982, had not vanished uh, all together so i mean i love the story from farnborough uh of the department of defensive weapons who had a a chap called bert whose job was to make uh airfix models of sea harriers and harriers which they would then kind of stick up on the roof of the aviation medicine department sort of flat um roof of the sort of aviation medicine department sort of prefab um and measure uh how different uh camouflage schemes would uh would make those aeroplanes sort of less visible from from a distance and you know Bert's efforts to build Harriers um and the um efforts of um uh, John Barley who was uh, uh an expert in in uh, aeroplane camouflage uh, to provide the Sea Harriers with a, a new specialised um, camouflage scheme for the South Atlantic um, were all things that are unfolding alongside the training of 809 Squadron. So these wonderful sort of little boffin departments that were all contributing to uh, to success. That was Roland White. Harrier 809, Britain's legendary jump jet and the untold story of the Falklands War, has recently been published by Bantam Press. Thanks for listening. 
This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. On our next podcast, which is out tomorrow, Roger Morehouse will be giving a lecture on the invasion of Poland in 1939. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.